This is Writers in Tech, a podcast where today's top content strategists, UX writers, and content designers share their well-kept industry secrets. Today, we have a very special guest. Um, he's running a very cool content strategy podcast, and that's basically one of my favorite content strategy podcasts, which is Content Strategy uh, Insights. His name is Larry Swanson, and I'm very happy to have him today. Hey, Larry, how are you? I'm great. Uh, it's great to see you again, Yuval. Uh, it's uh, always fun to talk with you. Yes, the last time it was in the rolling tables in the, the UX Writer Conference, right? Oh, that's right. Yeah, I was, I've been to so many conferences <laughs> and so many events. I'm like, yeah, but I think you're correct. That was the last time we talked. So, yeah. It was very <laughs> and random gotta, and very fun. It was. Yeah, I don't know. For folks who didn't see that, well, who haven't experienced that, we were in a platform called Hop In, and it was just random, you know, networking connections and up pops you all. I was very happy to see that. <laughs> yes, it was like two minutes, but it was uh, on point. Uh, you said that you were in a lot of uh, conferences lately. So uh, what was your favorite um, conference that you've uh, visited lately? Boy, they're all so good. Um, oh, your favorite writing conference. That's uh... Okay. Oh, my favorite writing co- would be that one that we were at. That was um, Joe Walensky's UX Writer Conference. And I thought that was um, mm-hmm. just everything about that was good. The programming was good. I really liked the the way they set it up. There was a lot of interactivity like those uh, chat sessions that we met in, um, trying to remember which talks there, I think, um, trying to remember who, anyhow, like I said, I've been to, I've, since then I've been to design and content and I think one other Omnichannel X and, uh, they all start to run together, but, um, uh, yeah, I've seen, I guess it's more, you know, what thing. Like, so content strategy is of responsibilities, I would say. Yeah, one of the ways, you know, one thing that I've done, because, you know, I really, I got to say, Yuval, I really envy you because you've picked, a, you've picked a very specific niche, UX writing, and you're all about that. You're deep down into there. You've built a big community around it. I'm the, I'm a, you're on the vertical part of a T. I'm on the horizontal of the T. I've cast a really wide net over this whole field of content strategy. And one of the things that's helped me kind of not, you know, kind of make sense of it is I think there's kind of what I call three flavors of content strategy. There's like the business and web content stuff that's uh, kind of typically that's where all the content marketing content and other marketing content and all the about content on your web page, your job descriptions, all that kind of stuff. There's And then there's your world, the world of product content strategy, which is I know you're a product person originally, and um, and that's sort of all about UX writing. And, and I would argue that Content, like the way Sarah Richards conceived of content design, I think she'd put it equally in the product and the, the website. But you can also think of content design, I think, as like the UX, the, the UX writing, I don't know, kind of the content person on a design team, that new role that sits right alongside the interaction designers, the researchers, the usability testers, um, <clears throat> and all that. So anyhow, there's that, that product content strategy. And then the probably the oldest and kind of most established and venerable flavor would be technical content strategy. But again, a lot of overlap there with product because 
it used to be the technical content strategy was like the software developers would hand you a working product and say, explain this to people. Now it's much more interactive. And and the folks that you're working with the, the, in the best places, I think the UX writers and the product content strategists are working with them. And, and the documentation, nobody reads manuals anymore. It's all in line or in some way or another. So, um, so anyhow, so that's helped me. Uh, that distinction between business product and technical content strategy kind of helps me keep it all straight in my head. Got it. And let's say that um, we're building right now uh, an e-com store uh, or you know what? Let's say that we want to do some kind of a makeover to a business, um, which is a profitable e-commerce store that never invested a cent in content strategy or content at all. And now they want to, um, to reach more audiences or, or they want to strategize their content to be in front of their right eyes in the right time, the right medium, just like you said. So what will be their first step that they would have to do in order to, to start with that process? Well, I would argue nowadays that we could all benefit from just stepping entirely back from the whole, you know, you know, like for example, I, I used to say, start with a, you know, with your customer's needs and a, and a customer journey map. The problem with that approach, I think is that almost all journey maps, it's like a, a one-to-one correlation between what your customer, your customer, your prospect is doing and what you want them to do and the information you think about helping them do that. I like kind of backing up a level above that to like the jobs to be done kind of approach or the way service designers approach it, where you just step away from your product, your company, and just get up in your customers' heads as to what their concerns are. What is the problem that you're trying to solve day to day? You're going to be in a domain that's about your product and your company. But the more you, I think the more that you can back away from having from thinking right out of the gate about linking every piece of content to a specific, um, you know, like kind of um, uh, place down the funnel that you're trying to push your customer. If you can step above that, I think starting there, and that's and that's the thing about where I love that UX has become such an entrenched part of content strategy because the tools are there for that, like things like ethnographic research and then and and the and the other kinds of qualitative research as well as the the really well thought out integration between those qualitative methods and the quantitative methods and sort of having an ongoing loop of insight that informs both the qualitative and the quantitative. So that's what, that's what I would say is in any project like that, I would back up to as high a level. And this gets into like the fundamental challenge of content strategy that totally depends on the people involved. (laughs) You know, you have to get buy-in and so many people are just, um, I listened to a podcast yesterday. I can't remember which one it was, but the um, it was a UX. Uh, oh no, I know it was a um, Blaine Kylo's um, the Content Strategy Inc. guy. His podcast, and he was interviewing a couple of Canadian uh, government uh, content strategists, and one of them talked about the challenge that they face. Of it's like when you're a teenager and you're getting into your arguments with your parents at the dinner table about being a vegetarian or something like that, and they just roll their eyes at you. They said that this comes up a lot, at least in their government work, that as you try to sell, they go, oh, there she goes again, trying to sell us on research and their eyes roll back. So we have a challenge there in terms of better communicating um, the, the need for that. So there is, so that would be the ideal, but the reality of it is that like, and you as an, anyone as an individual content strategy practitioner 
you may have to just cheat and sneak in as much research as you can do on your own or as you can kind of do guerrilla research um, to, to make that happen. But um, so there's going to be varying degrees of, you know, uh, buy-in from your from your top, your key, the budget and time allocating stakeholders that may or may not limit you there. So, mm-hmm. All right. So that's um, interesting. So, for example, once in the UX Writing Hub, we had a client, which was um, a website called uh, Visit Norway, which is a traveling website uh, funded by the Nor- uh, Norwegian government. And um, they asked for content strategy tips uh, as part of the workshop, like UX writing, but also content strategy uh, tips. Uh, of course, it was before COVID-19 era, but the main goal was to, um, it, it was pretty like general audience, people from all over the world. And the idea was to create a content platform because uh, that website, Visit Nowhere is a content platform. And uh, the idea is that this content would somehow uh, make sure or at least uh, persuade people that Norway is a wonderful place and they should visit uh, Norway. Basically, that's the name of the website. So in your process, what will be the first step to do there? Where, you know, the people who visit Norway are reaching out to you and they say, we want our goal to make sure that more people will visit Norway. Go. Mm-hmm. Yep. The first thing I'd do would be to figure out how to do as much of that backing up as I was just talking about to get, because they're going to be thinking in terms of uh, historical places to visit and cultural landmarks and, and recreational places. They're just going to have like the features of their country in mind. And that's probably, and, and that's probably a big selling point, but you know, the, the way you, get people more interested in that is to back up and think about, oh, they're looking for leisure or entertainment or whatever it is to just kind of flip that script a little bit. And then very quickly after that, and that kind of gets into that whole research stuff we were talking about, very quickly after that, I really like starting with a domain model. I I don't know if you've read uh, Carrie Carrie, uh, Hain and Mike Atherton's book, Designing Connected Content. I think that's yeah, it's a really good book. It probably does. There's a lot of people who've covered this. Um, Cruz Saunders talks about it a lot and others, but um, but they talk more about... Anyhow, there's this... The idea of a do- domain model is where you, again, you kind of back away above like the, the, the content level of what you're doing and you get at a conceptual level about what are we, what's, what are we doing here? We're talking about travel to Norway. So you come up with all those things that just rattle off like destinations and activities and uh, whatever all of those entities are. Um, and then, and as well as the, the people, the, 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 you know, whether they're tourists or business travelers or things like that, there's, there's sort of ways to, categorize and account for all the different entities involved in this, in this um, ultimately about traveling to Norway. Um, and so a domain model is, it's, it's sort of like, if you've ever, have you ever done any relational database design? Um, it, there's, there's a field. Uh, I don't think so. Okay. Yeah. Cause there's a thing, there's a practice in there called, ent- where you create an entity relationship diagram to, um, to before you begin to actually physically build the database. This is analogous to that and looks very similar in the way you diagram it, but conceptually it's sort of one level up from that in that it's, um, you're just talking about what are, what are we talking about here and how are those entities connected? Uh, that's really powerful work to figure out 
just what it is you're going to talk about and how you're going to and and the attributes of each entity and how they're connected. And the power of this, I think, in terms of a content strategy practice is that if you can get like the the tourism board people, the web people, the the business people, whoever all the major stakeholders are in that, they all all the people in the agency that are doing the work with the, the Norwegian government, as many of those people as you can get involved in that process, the better. Because then you're all talking from the same conceptual model and the same sort of agreement about terminology going forward. That's, I think, a really, because so many times, you know, the marketing person will have their marketing hat on, the web developer will have their their way of talking about things. And those, just those two examples there, they might have very different ways of labeling the same entity or attribute of that entity. But it's important to get, I think, to where you have an agreement about like, oh, when I say, you know, widget, you think, um, you know, factor, and then somehow connecting those terms. So you're all speaking the same language that can just save a lot of, um, of, uh, just hazard down the road about miscommunication. It can also help you build that domain model looks conceptually very much like a, like a knowledge graph, which is at the whole other end of this process of any kind of website or anything connected to the web. Now you want to have like, um, metadata and the, the content, uh, you know, as much data about your content as you do have content itself. So it sort of sets you up for, it sets you up for a lot of stuff, for stakeholder alignment, for structuring your content appropriately down the road and doing that. So those would be the first two steps to get that research behind it all out of your head into your customer's head, work from that domain model. And then you can work on, then you can get onto the, um, you know, and then at that point, you're probably back to the like reconciling your business needs with your customer needs. And then all that fun work starts. Right, which is uh, making sure that more people will visit uh, Norway, for example. Exactly, yeah. And those at that point, I think that those kind of alignments become easier if you've done that hard work of the, you know, modeling the domain up front because you're all talking the same language. You're like, um, there's fewer, hopefully fewer turf battles and kind of internal wrangling at that point. You're just, that helps folk keep that customer on the customer focus in place as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, after you uh, were doing the research and then uh, talking to the team and making sure that uh, everything is aligned with the uh, business goals, so what would be the next steps? Well, I think at that point, you're ready to formulate a strategy. You know, there's some other discovery stuff that you probably want to do, but you're very close at that point to being able to say like, okay, we understand our customers. We know what we want to accomplish as a business. Let's craft the, the the plan going forward for how we're going to make those two things, ha- you know, honor and respect and address the needs of our customers and get our business goals in place. And that's when you come up with like, okay, and so we know what they want. We know that we're, you know, we kind of, you know, we don't have a full Hollywood production studio. So we'll do some video shoots with our iPhones. You know, you kind of start to figure out what your budgets and the various constraints you might have are, and then just stitch together at that point, like a, um, like an overarching strategy that would encompass, you're also going to have a good point, a good feeling at this point for your messaging architecture, like the fundamental overarching thing that's thing that you're going to, going to be saying, it might not track, probably doesn't track to the individual marketing or other messages that you might do, but you'll want to have a good feel for like how you're going to talk about this. And those, that's another element of your strategy. And people, everybody does this differently. I had 
Jared Spool on the podcast a couple of years ago. And at one point he said, Larry, quit looking for easy answers. This is all bespoke. <laughs> you know, every, every company has its own unique way of doing things. So how, but, but those, all those things I just talked about will be elements of your strategy and whether you articulate it as a strategy statement that you share in a Google doc someplace or, you know, however you do that in your organization. Um, at that point you'll have a, and that, and that strategy, and that'll also probably naturally the, the overarching plan will unfold from that strategy work as well. And then you get onto the fun work of designing your content, engineering it, building it, you know. Is there a way to kind of um, um, maybe offer a few suggestions for content pieces and then test them somehow or offer some tests or something like that? So, you know, you could strategize different, two different plans and uh, test both of them and then just go with the one that works better. formula experience yeah I think you know that is one of those it's almost like a fractal thing that should be happening at every level like even your messaging architecture and things like that you probably want to have a way of testing that messaging like I've talked to a lot of brand people recently and you know there's this thing in branding you have what you want to say and what you want to be known for but the way branding works is it's like it's just what the impression of you that your customers form about you. It's how they talk about you when you're not telling them how to talk about you. So at, even at that level, there's this sort of, um, uh, uh, you know, figuring out how to align those things. So, um, and that, and so, in, and you can, you can figure out like probably qualitative, like interview and survey kinds of ways to see how well those things are lining up. But even down that would be part to me that research part of it and the usability testing and stuff would be part of the overarching strategy and plan it's like part of our strategy is to test our hypotheses and assumptions and here's how we're going to do it at every stage we're going to have some way of testing our overarching messaging architecture when you get down to individual like you know um copy in an interface or advertising copy or social media um shares you'll want to have at every one of those junctures um a way to test the effectiveness of that content. Um, and there's tons of ways, you know, a lot of, a lot of people I think rely on Google analytics and other analytics tools for that. But I think even go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but even, even with that, even there's a lot that you can discern and learn from. No, I saw it. I cut you in the middle. So, uh, oh. oh, oh, you're cutting off a little bit. You've all. Let me, sorry, let me check my internet connection real quick. Um, sorry. Can you hear me now? I'm just going to make sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm hearing you. Okay. Now. Um, yeah, I think my internet's just a little bit. Sorry. What were we? <laughs> Maybe we can, we can take off the video. Let's try to take off the video and then oh, yeah. uh, maybe okay. the internet will work better. Yep. See if that gives us some more bandwidth. Yeah, because my, my speed is a little slow right now. Okay. Um, so, so the last I thing I, I, I heard is the testing with Google Analytics and stuff like that. Yeah. And I think, I think it's important to balance, again, back to that balance between your quantitative and your qualitative research methods, that throughout this, you can learn a lot and, and measure a lot um, with Google Analytics, but even a minimal amount of, um, of qualitative testing, like just calling up. I, I just saw, I think I just shared it on LinkedIn yesterday or the day before. 
Um, Jared Spool shared, um, I think it was Jared, shared a, um, a, 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 an older piece um, about usability testing content. And basically the idea, the, the, the gist of that article was like the importance of not just going by a readability tester like the Fleisch score or Hemingway app or one of those more kind of rudimentary testing things, but to um, but to interject some kind of qualitative element to your um, your evaluation of your content. So and that can be as simple as just talking to one or two users. Um, and I remember talking years ago, God, the mid '90s. I saw Jakob Nielsen present at a web con- an early web conference, and he was talking about all this fancy usability testing stuff that they did at uh, the Nielsen Norman Group. And I went up to him afterwards and I said, dude, I'm working at this little scrappy underfunded startup. We don't have a budget. How can I do this? And he said, just get three or four or five users, put them in front of a computer, watch them use your product. Just shut up and don't say anything and watch the problems they have, you know, watch them serve the problems they have and then fix those problems. So I think you can do something analogous with, um, with, you know, content usability testing, just get, uh, as many, and there's so many great ways to do that. There's so many online tools that let you collaboratively kind of look over the shoulder of a user. Um, and you probably know more about that than I do those online usability testing things. But, um, but that's, that's what I would say about that is always have that to not just, you know, think great Google analytics is good. We're done. That, that's I agree. usually not yeah. going to make sure. That's usually Today not with the COVID-19 is a bit more difficult. So I just said before that I really liked your tip for like um, shadowing four or five of your customers or users, see how they use your product, uh, app services, and, and then uh, iterate and improve on that. I think that's a good uh, usability testing uh, method. You said that you were in a conference in 95, like web conference in 95. That's like... Amazing. Wow. It's very impressive. So <laughs> you, you've been around Actually, for a while, Larry. Uh, yeah, I've been doing this stuff a little while. And I think that conference, the Jakob Nielsen one was actually 97. But the first, I went to a conference in 95. There was a lot happening in 94, 95. I was working in book publishing then, and everybody was freaking out about the internet. <laughs> so there were a lot of, there were a lot of events uh, in the mid 90s uh, where people were trying to, you know, get ahead of the game a little bit. So it, it feels like that you got a, a ahead of the game, like 25 uh, years in advance, which is amazing. There are still people today that just today are, are uh, understanding like what is the meaning of being digital or digital transformation and stuff like that. So you probably have a lot of experience in probably understanding trends or at least understanding the positive sides of trends and how to and to find them. So what are your tips for, you know, making sure that we're following the right trends and that you learned in your journey from back in 1995, you know? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm not a futurist and I'm not a, you know, like a business course, analyst. Right? So take it sort of grain of salt. <laughs> but, um, I think, you know, what's interesting to me is that I had um, on my podcast a week or two ago, I had Andrea Volpini on. He's another, he's another guy who's been doing this stuff since the nineties. The and what I realized in talking with him is that, um, you know, 
the fundamentals have not really changed that much. Like the he and I were talking specifically about structured content and the open web and the semantic web, which are kind of concepts that date back to the early 2000s. But they were the the precursors to those were around even 25 years ago. Um, mm-hmm. So I think I think a lot of it is just about you know, that I would almost urge people not to be too much in the future, because I think that's one of the hazards is that we get ahead of ourselves that like, I think like all this stuff right now with fancy JavaScript frameworks, like review, view and react and, and all that stuff. I think, whoa, 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 slow down guys. You could probably do a great job with just HTML and simple JavaScript. You know, there's the, I mean, there's a lot of fun, interesting, really valuable stuff that's happening with that. But at the same time, I think for any one individual practitioner to not get too excited about that. That said, I do think there's a benefit to just keeping your ear to the ground and knowing what's going on. You know, for example, right now, I think that this, there's this whole new field of conversational design that you're probably, mm-hmm. you must be coming across that in your world, but like yes. probably... of the work that's been done to this point has been around, you know, somewhere in that world of the graphical user interface. In the voice world, which is growing by leaps and bounds just crazily, there's this whole idea of the VUI, the voice user interface. And the implications of that for content strategy are massive. You know, they work (laughs) with there's so one of the big trends that's happening or that should be happening, I'll say, in content strategy is the notion of structured content, like having um, structured authoring that creates content. Sorry about it. Yes. Oh, no worries. Um, but there's one of the big trends that I think could and should be emerging for more, more clearly and more ubiquitously in the not too distant future is this idea of structured content of having your content structured meaningfully and semantically in a in whatever kind of repository, whether it's a database or a knowledge graph kind of, or, you know, there's a whole bunch of different ways you can do that technically, but to, to truly separate your content from its presentation, that's really important. And I think, and I just have a hunch about this, but I'm keeping my ear to the ground about it, but that I think that'll be, you know, one of the implications of that is that you can have what the folks in the technical content strategy world talk about, uh, the idea of a single source of truth, um, that you have your single source, your content from one database or one source. The database isn't the right word because it's a repository is the better term. So you're, you're sourcing all of your um, content from one repository. And the benefit of that, like from a UX perspective is your customer, our customers don't care whether they're talking to Alexa or reading a web page or looking at an app or converse, conversing with a chat bot. They want and need the same content in the same style and voice. I mean, you want to be appropriate to each of those media that you're con- conversing with your folks in. But so anyhow, I think that that benefit of having your content in something close to a single source of truth where you create it once and then you can use it in a variety of different places, people who figure out how to do that are going to do better, you know, than publishers who don't. Like NPR has really thrived with their create once, publish everywhere methodology. And there's Rahel Bailey talks a lot about CODA, which is create once, um, distribute anywhere. Um, and so this notion of having, um, your content structured in a way that can be used in multiple places. That's an insight that I d- derive from talking to a bunch of different people in conversation design and a lot of people in the information architecture and um, kind of technical content strategy worlds. So I think 
you know, keeping, you know, having a focus in a way to be known professionally is good, but also casting as wide a net as possible to see what's coming. I think that can help you. Sorry, that was a long-winded way of saying that. No, that was good. That was good. So, right. So, uh, the idea here is to, you know, to be updated with that, what's happening in the industry and what people are talking about and doing. And I agree, conversation design is uh, is getting pretty pretty big right now. A lot of people are talking about chatbots and about creating conversational interfaces and and uh, also the voice uh, user interface, which I don't know almost nothing about, to be honest, because in Israel it's not common at all, or at least not in my personal circles to use these platforms, uh, even though I, I think I should be more involved in that uh, field. So uh, that's, uh, that's really interesting. Well, I would just say, be careful. It's a big, I'm, I am having a lot of fun talking to folks in that world, but it's like mm -hmm. a whole parallel universe of, you know, uh, design standards and, and, you know, data manipulation methods. It's, it's really interesting, but I'm, I'm committed to staying down in that rabbit hole until I figure out the connections that I think are almost certain to be there. Like those things about single. So can you, like, for example, can you even single source both voice content and print content, you know, from the same place. I think you can, but I don't know if it's, you know, how practical that's going to be. But um, yeah, and I, I liked your tip of like uh, not looking too much into the future, but seeing like what's happening right now and what are the pro problems that exist today and, uh, and then solve them, you know, yeah. people well, tend to think too much, uh, about what's going to happen, even though we have so many things that we can do today to, with our, the content that we create, that can uh, give value to so many people. Exactly. You know, one practical thing that occurs to me from that whole conversational design stuff is that I know there's probably many people who listen to you who are in job hunting or looking for their next opportunity. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if you come out of like any kind of storytelling world, like journalism or story, you know, screenplay writing or, or playwriting or uh, any field like that and are looking to get into UX writing or, or content strategy, there's a ton going on in the, in the, I don't know how exactly you'd find. It. I think if you look for content design, voice design, voice interface design, uh, voice interaction design, those kinds of, uh, things, I just, everybody I talk to is growing like crazy. So uh, there's probably some good opportunities out there for job hunters as well. I agree. Uh, a good friend of mine, my English teacher have background in theater is like an actor and people, in our courses of the UX writing hub, so many students are have uh, have backgrounds in journalism, and uh, and that's interesting. There's a lot of parallels um, in uh, between UX writing, for example, and journalism. Both like doing a lot of research before they create content. Both need to tell a story in a compelling way that will. Um, um, invite people in, you know, so, uh, that's a very good tip. And I see more and more people in the industry coming from different backgrounds. And I think, and I feel like it, it brings so much more colors to our industry, you know, uh, so many, you know, creatives and stuff like that. I think that it's very enriching experience. Like, uh, for example, I found myself, uh, with Toby, 
the the actor that was doing the transition to UX. So uh, he teach me Shakespeare, for example, and I would never learn Shakespeare English uh, if uh, if not uh, Toby. So I think it's really interesting to have these kind of people in the industry right now. I agree, and I I love. That you know, the bigger the melting pot, you know, the more different voices and perspectives that we bring into the profession. I think the better. You know, it's just that a dynamic you just described will just be exponentially increased with every new, every new profession that we can draw in. I agree, and that's exciting. Yeah. Um, what uh, tips do you have to people that are that want to get into the field right now, but? Uh, not sure what what should be their first step boy that's a good question they want to be writers in tech yeah i think you know for that that role i think you know if you're if you're a, a person who's just looking and trying to figure out a direction my hunch is that the, the the world that you're in, the world of the UX writer and the um, the product content strategist, whatever they you're called in any one organization, I think that's a great place to start. And both because there just seems to be a lot of interest in it. You look at how quickly and your community has grown, um, but also when you just look at how software and interaction design and UX design in general is developing. There just seems to be a ton of opportunities there. It's also, and the thing I like about it, and the reason I would recommend it to somebody who's new to the field, is that it seems to be way better defined. You know, as we talked early on, content strategy can be a, a really tough term to, to nail down. UX writing is emerging pretty quickly as a pretty well-articulated field. So I would start there. And, yeah, and the thing, like you were talking about a minute ago, people come from journalism from all kinds of different backgrounds. I think there's a lot of ways into it and it's pretty well articulated. So I would start there. It took us a while to articulate the fact that the world needs UX writers. It took us a lot of years. You know, people were like uh, thinking it's, you know, it's just the copy of the buttons. It's not something too serious, you know. And uh, we had to kind of fight for it for a long time um, just to prove the value of it. And I think that this fight is... It's still a fight. I don't think it, that is common to many companies today. Um, more than before, 100%, but it's not still not a common practice to, you know, to budget heavily for content people in your team, even though I believe that they should because the content people, the writers, the content strategists are the first and last line of communication with your potential customers, your existing customers and your customers that want to leave and uh, where, where should you invest all of your budget in, if not in in the way that you're communicating your message to those people but uh, yeah. no the way anyways. you said that just bolsters that you just reinforced what i was talking about because it really is an important job too you can have a lot of impact like all those things you just mentioned, like recruiting and retaining and keeping customers on board, that's your job as a UX writer. So that's a really important role. And I think, but also to, you're, you're also exactly right that there's a lot of work ahead of us because, um, you know, you think that when I talk, I talk to a lot of like software company people and I always ask like, Hey, so what's your ratio of engineers to UX designers? And among those UX folks, how many of them are dedicated to content? And it's almost always like 
20 engineers, maybe one or two UX people. And, oh yeah, we just write the words, you know, it's, there's, so I think there's both a challenge there, but there's also a a huge opportunity, you know, I think, yeah. Yeah. I think that the ratio is going to be, you know, you see this, um, there is a big movement right now and they, it's like the no code movement. Many people that are trying to develop stuff or digital experiences or digital products without code. So you have, different uh, products like Webflow, for example, which is a web builder or Bubble, which is an app builder without code. And you have uh, platforms like MakerPad, which is a platform that uh, kind of educate the no-code industry. So we have a huge movement of people that are all about designing products without developers. So I'm definitely not saying that we don't need developers because they lay the foundations of all the technologies that we create. But at at the end of the day, if you have two similar technologies and one technology that, you know, was, um, and people invest time and effort in the user experience of that technology for the end user. So 100% that that platform, that technology is going to succeed and going to be better. So we must have developers, but at the end of the day, the winner is going to be the one that have better UX. So, uh, and we're seeing more and more, you know, technologies that are not that hard to create anymore. As you said, we have all of these crazy frameworks, JavaScript frameworks that you can just like plug and play and use like integrations or APIs and stuff like that. And it's only a matter of fact of how you design them at the end of the day. Yeah, I agree. And I love the way you set out that landscape of those new, like, code, you know, coding without coders, the no code movie. Yeah. Um, Because it's like exploding right now. Yeah, that's so interesting to me because at the other end of the spectrum, you have the whole, like the world of the Jamstack and the the notion of, um, you know, completely separated content repositories, like a headless CMS back in the back. And then you, you, but to do that, there's a lot of power in that, but you need like a ton of developers writing some kind of JavaScript front end to, um, uh, for the display end of that, or whether it's JavaScript or it could be, like I was saying, it could be a voice thing or something like that. So this idea, I, but I think you're right that like that it sounds like there's enough tools in that in that uh, no code universe now to test this idea of like, yeah, great. I'm a good UX designer. I'm just going to design a good product and a good experience. And, um, sorry, coders, I don't have that much work for you. Um, you know, that's CMS, like content management systems that you can operate without code, like WordPress, Webflow, even, um, content fuel, you know, you have many, uh, and I guess you don't have all of the features in, in those and not, like they're not doing the heavy lifting of, of uh, what coders uh, can do, but they can be more than enough. You know, TechCrunch is a WordPress blog at the end of the day. Yep. No, I agree. I love that. And you're making me think about, because there's so many, the world is so big now and everything is digital. And there's a lot of different ways you can do it. Like if you're building a platform, you're going to have to have a bunch of developers and and conventional uh, kind of uh, workforce. But if you just, just have like a good idea about, a, a way of doing something or conveying some information. Yeah, you're right. The 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 no code tools are there to to just let the us UX people run wild. Exactly, and you have like no code challenges too. So people are challenging themselves to create 
more experience without code. You can, you can actually see people today building websites like Airbnb and like different complicated job boards without a single line of code. And that's uh, unique. Well, wow, that's, um, you know, I haven't been in a while. I used to go to a lot of startup weekends and hackathon things. Those tools must be really popular in that world. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. And if not, uh, I think uh, we should talk more about them and promote them and uh, create a movement of, you know, designers that don't depend on developers and pretty expensive developers that will take their ideas and put life in it. You know, you have... And it's pretty fun that you, it's really fun that you can uh, design your own solution and make them work at the end of the day. Uh, it's challenging. You need to go to be creative and understand what tools you can use and you need to learn what the capabilities are of each tool. But, uh, the things that you can do today are crazy. Yeah. It's, it's such a fun time to be doing this stuff. I got to say, because yeah. like you were talking earlier about why wow, Envy Helling, you've been around. It was so hard to do anything 25 years ago. And now it's like you just download an app and you're building some expensive or you're some crazy complex thing with no code. Yeah, I love it. I would never get along like uh, 25 years ago because I don't know how to code. And I tried so many times and it was so difficult to me personally. And I, I did it and I, it was so complicated. It took me so much time and I like to see stuff happening right at the second that I do it. So like the things you can do, you can, for example, you can take uh, an app called Calendly that can book meetings for you and you can build integrations without code between Calendly and your uh, MailChimp account and then automatically send email to a person that just book a meeting with you. And then you can uh, integrate it with, I don't know, maybe some other platforms and you can build this all interesting operation only based on existing tools. So other developers already created it. So you just like plug and play them. Yep. No, and that just gets to, I guess, you know, in terms of like the kind of skills that people wanted to be developing, just that sort of like logical algorithmic kind of brain and then you can do it without having to learn all the, the difficult code stuff. That's, exactly. there's probably going to be that's, limits to that, but yeah. That's what design is all about. Finding the best solution uh, that you can. Exactly. Now that's why I try to identify. I, it's, I don't know how to identify myself, but design, I, I call myself a UX content strategist now to just, mm -hmm. you know, mostly to distinguish myself from the marketing folks, but also yeah. because that is my top level approach. It's difficult, you know, titles these days, I just uh, wrote a post about it, that you have companies that hiring for uh, UX writers, but they actually write content strategists in their, uh, uh, in their uh, job description and vice versa, people that hiring UX writers. And actually looking for a content strategist. Um, in England, people call UX writers content designers. So that's make a bit of a confusion in, in a few circles. And, and at the end of the day, it's not about the, the title. It's about your the fact that you can write effective content that leads people to action and solve other people's problem and giving other people 
value with the content that you create. And it, in my opinion, it really doesn't matter what, what your title is, even if it's I, not UX, right? I agree 100%, but <laughs> I would also love it if we could get our act together as a profession and kind of codify and articulate this stuff so that people aren't just kind of, you know, making a stab in the dark about what to call somebody when they're hiring them, you know, to have like, if nothing else, like a correlation chart between like, oh, you want this set of skills? Oh, you want to call that content designer, UX writer, product, you know, however you do that. Um, that could be a fun project. Maybe you and I should do that. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Like uh, many people tried before and uh, it, between like what I try, think, what I'm thinking right now is, um, that um, so UX writers are essentially product designers that design product with words. So, but at the same time, calling UX writers product designers would be very, very confusing. Uh, I know that there is many companies that just hire writers and those writers just educate people from all over the company. Uh, if it's how to write their emails or how to write a landing page or how to write their product, anything, any, any piece of content. So they like the company's writers. And so, and they're doing also the content strategy. So this is very complicated and, and we, I don't think we're going to get there until the industry will kind of shape um, best practice for, for this uh, position. Yep. No, I agree. And in fact, you're reminding me, I was talking with a friend in Seattle the other day who's um, involved with the Content Strategy Alliance. And I know they're doing some work around this kind of thing, like trying to come up with like certification programs and and kind of industry descriptions to help with that kind of stuff. I don't know. I don't know how far along they are, but yeah, it's uh, I think I, there was a great thread on Twitter like four or five months ago uh, where somebody made the case that because we're in this conundrum of being so ill-defined that that's actually a good thing, that that means we're at this vibrant, growing profession, that um, that that's the least of our problems. There's a lot of good work to be done. We just have to figure out how to get there, out, out there and do it. And then we can label ourselves better later. <laughs> I agree. And uh, what kind of... Uh, I saw that you have a uh, talk in um uh, in utterly content conference right it's going to yes. be in uh, october 19 we're going to talk about a uh, modeling content strategy so uh, we're about to finish but i would love to learn more and i'm sure that the listeners would love to learn more about that conference yeah it's um well first thing if, if it sounds interesting it's a really interesting conference in fact i'm going to help uh, tracy a little bit with promoting it and, and organizing some of the stuff around the, the event um mm -hmm. And um, I think that happened after we agreed I was going to speak there. Anyhow, but the, so first thing is I'm going to talk about uh, modeling content strategy, which is one of the things with this wide net that I've cast over the discipline has permitted me to do is to just draw a lot of connections and see, just kind of step above, get out of the day-to-day -day concerns of practice 
and just look back down at the profession and try to figure out how to model it. You know, to, this gets to a lot of what we've been talking about. A lot of my intent in doing that is to be able to talk to other people about it and sell our profession better. So I look at models like, you know, the content maturity models, life cycle models, systems models. There's a whole bunch of different ways you can look at it. I'm going to have a lot of fun with that. But that's part of the Utterly content is a, it'll be a 19 hour event. It's going to be kind of a global content strategy festival that will start at like early morning British time and end, I think mid afternoon Pacific time in the U S anyhow there. And if you look at the lineup, um, just a bunch of great folks, David Dylan Thomas, who just is uh, publishing a book tomorrow on, uh, well, depending on when this airs, but on August uh, 25th, um, he's publishing uh, uh, his book on um, design for cognitive bias is coming out. Uh, Sarah nice. Richards, the woman who conceived of content design, she'll be speaking. Just yeah, a really yeah, Sarah is great. Um, so anyhow, so that's that's my next thing. And uh, oh, and if you want a discount code, you can just find me on Twitter. And um, as part of my speaker thing, I get a discount code that I can share with people. And you can nice. share it with me and I will uh, share it in the show notes. Oh, will do. I'll send you a note after we finish. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. All right, Larry, it was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for your time. Likewise, Paul, it's always great to connect with you. I, it's always fun to talk. Always fun to talk. So uh, thank you, everyone, for uh, joining Writers in Tech, a podcast by the UX Writing Hub. If you're not in the loop of our newsletter, so I really recommend to go to uxwritinghub.com and join our weekly newsletter where we share a lot of um, jobs and different uh, articles and microcopy examples and portfolio examples and just you know bring all of the community discussions together and we just uh, uh, reached seven thousand followers which is crazy and i really recommend uh, to to join the loop it's a lot of fun uh, thank you larry and uh, have a great day Bye. thanks you thanks